0: everybody welcome to another episode of the AMA podcast my name is Matt Ruddick your host as always thank you so much for downloading this week's episode chances are you've if you've been in the hobby for any length of time you've either walked into a hobby town or you know someone who has HobbyTown was founded in 1980 and has since expanded to more than 100 franchise stores in more than 35 states and is the largest brick-and-mortar hobby retailer in the world. And today I am thrilled to have my guest, Bob Wilkies, the president of HobbyTown, and he's going to tell us a little bit about this important mainstay in the hobby community. Uh, Bob, welcome to the AMA podcast.
1: Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you on. Um, You know, one of the things I like to do with all of my guests, uh, you know, right off the bat is I'd like to get a little bit of background about you. Um, You know, what was your entry point like into the hobby industry?
1: Oh, you know, I've answered that question a lot of times. In 1987, I graduated from the University of Nebraska with a degree in finance. And I was considering going back to school to pursue an MBA when a friend of mine, his older brother, had just opened the first Hobbytown franchise in Colorado Springs. And uh, he was looking for some help during the summer, and he invited me to come um, stay with him during the summer, and I thought, you know, I could do that. I, I grew up in Nebraska, and I've always enjoyed going out to Colorado and being in the mountains, and so I took him up on that opportunity, and I worked in his store for just a few weeks before I decided, you know, I think I can do this. Um, so I began to put a plan together um, to open my own franchise store. So in 19, well, early 1988, I opened one of the early HobbyTown franchise stores in Fort Collins, Colorado, and that's how I got started were you uh,
0: involved in any kind of RC hobby or or any of those types of activities like as a, as a kid or, you know, growing up?
1: Well, I always tell people that, um, I grew up in the central part of Nebraska, very rural, Mm -hmm. um, a town of 5,000 people. And so my exposure to hobbies was very limited. And really I tell people that my hobby, um, collection came from the Sears Christmas catalog. I had a, uh, slot car set, and I had a train set, and um, at one point, when I was younger, I toured the Estes factory out in Colorado, mm-hmm. Penrose, Colorado, and I got an a entry-level rocket, and that was really my exposure to hobbies uh, until uh, that summer when I went out to Colorado Springs and visited the Hobby Tone store. So, I let me ask, you know,
0: about how Hobbytown was started- because obviously it's uh, you came in a little bit later, but uh, hobbytown, uh, I think I'm doing my research was founded back in nineteen eighty. What can you tell us about kind of those early days of of hobby town?
1: Yeah, sure, so Merle and Mary Hayes <clears throat> um, partnered with Tom Walla, and Tom and Mary are still actually active in the company. Um, they bought a store that was a small hobby store in downtown Lincoln, Nebraska and um, operated that for oh, about four or five years. And then they opened a second store um, on the other side of Lincoln. And they just had a lot of people that would come into the store and say, hey, I would like to start my own hobby store. You know. And they heard that enough times that they decided, you know what, um, let's explore franchising. And so um, in 1985 um, is when they uh, actually founded the franchise side of the business. And in 1986 is when the first franchise store opened out in Colorado Springs.
0: Yeah. And I have to imagine, uh, I mean, that was had to be a big step for them to, to kind of put their trust in other people to, to, you know, carry their brand, Um, you know, as being part of the, that early process. um, What was that like for you to kind of take on that responsibility?
1: Well, um, you know, like I said, it was early on. I think at that point, um there were only five or six other franchise stores and um there just there weren't a lot of systems and processes in place. So it was really um and that was part of the appeal to me was that we could really just kind of take the framework of the, the business that they had started and kind of weave it and build it to um what we felt like was gonna be the best um hobby store in the market that we're in. So like for instance in Fort Collins um i was most at that time that was when the boom was going on in the sports card trading cards uh-huh. and that really appealed to me and was interesting to me so i really got into that and i was allowed to do that because that was one of the product categories that we sold in the store um but yeah as far as representing the brand and being essentially the brand ambassador in in a market like fort collins um yeah it's it was a little bit daunting because i was in my early 20s and just learning how to operate, own and operate a business. Um, you know, I always tell people that I, I learned more in that first year of owning and operating the business than I did four years of business college. So, if I could do some things over, I would probably just get right into <laughs> owning and operating my business without spending four years in school. But that's a whole nother story.
0: That's I've, I feel like I've heard that sentiment from a lot of folks. So that I don't think you're alone there. Um, so. What was, I'm curious about, you know, kind of the reception that you had from your customer base. So um, because, you know, that was kind of, I think, a new model, obviously, with, especially in the hobby industry at that point in time to have these franchise stores uh, kind of scattered around. Was uh, the, you know, the, the customer reception pretty positive?
1: Yeah, it was because um, in Port Collins, um, there was only one small hobby store that did very little in radio control. And that was our largest category when we opened. Um, Kind of the funny thing when you talk about customer reception, because I was in my early 20s and my partner um, was also in his early 20s, um, people would come in and say, I want to talk to the owner. And I said, okay, um, you're talking to him. (laughs) Or they'd wonder where my dad is. It's like, where's your dad? He's back in Nebraska. (laughs) So... Um, I guess it was a little unusual to be at my age and owning and operating a store at that point. But, um, no, it was really fun. People really welcomed us into the community, and um, the local flying club um, was fantastic. Um, they came in, and they you know, they supported us, and they invited us to come out to the flying field and learn how to fly. That's where I learned how to fly my first radio control airplane was out at the flying field, and so I had a good instructor. The only thing he failed to tell me was that I should always check the batteries in my receiver before I take off. <laughs> and so I learned that lesson, and I was able to share that with all my customers. That hey, you know, this is one thing you want to do so you make sure you don't crash your airplane.
0: Learn learn that the hard way. I take it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do Do you remember what that airplane was?
1: Aerostar uh, Avastar forty. Oh wow! you remember that one?
0: I I'm I'm familiar with it. I so I haven't been in the hobby quite that long. Uh, I'm, I'm fairly new to it, but I am familiar with that air, with that airplane yeah yeah,
1: now was a real easy to fly airplane easy to crash to
0: <laughs> <laughs> well um so obviously you, you started out in uh, with this franchise in, in your early twenties i'm curious about your path um because i mean you're now the president of hobbytown you're you're running the place at this point what was that uh,
1: that path like for you? Well, I wish I could say that um, everything went according to plan, Um, (laughs) but no, I never um, anticipated or expected to to be in the role that I'm in today, back then, certainly. Um, So my wife is from Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska, where we're based, and we were married and lived in Colorado for a year, and she kind of decided she wanted to move back to Lincoln. So we moved back to Lincoln. And I actually went to pick up some supplies at the Hobbytown headquarters, and I told them, I said, you know, I'm I'm back here. I'm gonna line up some job interviews because we're planning to move back here. And I was offered a job on the spot um, to come work at Hobbytown um, because they didn't have anybody with my experience um, owning and operating a store. So they thought, you know, this would be great to get somebody that has done this. Um, and it really was good because one of the first things that I did is I traveled the country. And I think at that time we had maybe 60 or 70 franchise stores. And I went out and I visited those owners and just had an instant connection with them because um, we were basically peers, you know, Um, I knew what they were going through and um, I knew what I wanted from the franchise. And we had a lot of alignment wanting the same thing. So um, I had the opportunity um, early on, to just kind of help in the development of some of those things, you know, we got into product distribution. Um, that was one of the big things. Eventually, we got into product manufacturing. Um, you know, some of those things that I just thought, you know, as as we grew and had more franchisees and more more volume and uh, more buying power and the ability to do some of those things, that would really be a huge benefit. And the main thing for me was just to get franchisees to want to renew. It's a 10 year franchise agreement. And my concern was, you know, if you learn the business and there's no added value, then why would you stay in the franchise? So I want to make sure that I could do everything within my power to, um, add that value to being a part of the franchise so that when that time came to renew, it was a no brainer. They would want to keep going. And, um, our track record is very strong. We're, um, franchisees continue to renew their franchise agreements so i I hope that speaks well to the value that they see in being part of the franchise
0: you know I've always been a, a proponent of you know when leadership within a within a company or within an organization within a group whatever the case may be that leadership has some experience kind of being on the front lines as it were and that certainly I think you know, what you had there. And I'm sure that is very appealing to the folks who were, you know, the franchisees and uh, knowing that there was somebody there that could relate to their, the the problems that they were having, the struggles that they were having. So I I can absolutely imagine that that was a great thing for the company.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It really, I think it was, Um, you know, it's interesting now because they probably don't think that so much anymore because so much has changed that, If I walk into a store today, it doesn't operate or function the way it did back in 1987,
0: that's for sure. Right. Well, it it actually leads me into the next question that I had, because I I don't think it's any secret uh, that brick and mortar hobby shops have been through some pretty difficult times over the past decade, you know, decade and a half, maybe, maybe longer. Um, I'm curious about the challenges that uh, you guys have experienced as, you know, a modern brick and mortar hobby shop and how have you guys adapted to kind of this whole changing environment?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, when I first got into this, um, you know, obviously the internet was, um, really no big deal. Um, until later on in the late nineties, I guess is kind of when it really started to go with e-commerce and whatnot. Um, that was probably the biggest change to the business. Um, prior to that, I would say the biggest change in the business from when I started was um, you know, if you wanted to fly a radio control airplane, you're buying a box of sticks, gluing it together, spending an entire, mm-hmm. probably entire winter season building your airplane yeah. to fly the next spring. Um, and then along came the ready to fly kits and you know a lot of people that were into the hobby the hobby enthusiasts didn't like that you know because that was you know they were purists they they loved the art of building their planes and didn't really like this idea where anybody could just kind of walk off the streets grab a plane and go fly mm-hmm. um and they had good reasons for that you know they didn't want people out of their flying fields that didn't know what they were doing um so um, there was obviously that concern, but we kind of saw it a different way. We saw it just really opening the doors to a lot of people um, that would never even consider flying radio control as a hobby. Um, and same thing with surface with vehicles. It used to be you, you buy a car kit and you had to assemble that car, every piece of it, which, you know, I assembled so many, to me, uh, um, grasshoppers that I could probably put that gear box together in my sleep. (laughs) So I always knew how to fix the problem. Right. You know, with the radio, with the radio to fly or radio to run cars, customers buy those and come in. They don't know how to fix the problem. So they kind of turn their hobby into your hobby. Yeah. (laughs) They want you to fix um, things that happen. So that's, I guess that's the downside to it. So Mm -hmm. there's the positive that it can create a whole new market of customers. But the downside is they're they're really, they're, more buying it as a toy than a hobby, um, something to just go out and play with. And if it breaks, they take it back to the shop, and you know they'll spend the money to have somebody else fix it.
0: Yeah, you you know it's interesting because we we have this conversation, um, you know, both you know internally and and with our members uh, about you know ready to fly aircraft. And I think you know the surface folks probably have the same conversations. Uh, just exactly to your point, it's that. Well, you know, people buy these, but they don't really know how they work and they can't fix them and, 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 and rebuild them when they crash and that sort of thing. And I've always kind of looked at it uh, similar to the way you are. It's like these ready-to-fly airplanes and, and kits, it's a it's an entry point. And the, the most successful ways to get somebody to enter the hobby is to give them a great first experience. And if the first experience is, well, I spend you know, two months building this airplane kit and then I take it out and I crash it on the first flight. That typically is not going to be a great experience and not going to encourage them to want to learn more, but um, I can use myself as an example, because uh, as I mentioned, I came very late uh, in to, to this, to this hobby. And what I found was that, yeah, I started out with, you know, some, some ready to fly stuff. Um, but as soon as I you know, had those first few flights and I said, wow, this is cool. Now I want to, I want to know more and I want to learn the other sides of this. And I think that probably happens more often than not. I would, at least I would hope so. Um, so I've always kind of looked at it in, in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, you kind of touched on it, but I'm, I'm curious if you have any more thoughts about, um, because obviously, you know, our audience is mostly primarily model airplane enthusiasts the uh, you know you mentioned the you know how the market has kind of changed uh, with you know the ready to fly stuff coming becoming more prevalent. Is there, is there anything else that you've noticed within that market over the years that's that's kind of
1: changed? Well, um, you know, in 2016, when the FAA came out with the uh, requirements to register to fly, mm-hmm. we saw our sales in the air category just drop like a rock. Um, I think that first year we were down 30% after that regulation came out. And the next year it dropped another 30%. And it really took about four, maybe five years before it kind of stabilized at this new level of sales. And we have really struggled ever since to rebuild those sales and get it back to where it was. So my concern is that with all this regulation, we've really kind of limited the amount of people that are really willing to pursue this as a hobby compared to prior to the red, the, the, regulation. So that's something that we're going to have to overcome as an industry. And I know AMA has done a great job, um, you know, fighting that battle for us. Yeah. Um, but it's just something, you know, and then the advent of drones um, or UAVs, they, um, you know, that, that, certainly changed, um, opened the doors to a lot of new customers, but also created a lot of problems at the same time. So, um, you know, I would say that was probably in my 35 plus years of doing this. Um, probably one of the most significant things that I can just point to and go December, 2016, yeah, <laughs> those regulations came out, everything changed.
0: I, I do think that that, that date is probably etched in all of our, our minds. <laughs> I, I think that impacted an awful lot of people. And yeah, we, I can definitely, definitely relate to that for sure. Um, well, on, on a positive note um, I'm curious, you know, uh, cause we're at the end of the year uh, it is the holiday season. Uh, so of course, I hope everybody goes and visits hobbytown.com or their local franchise uh, in their area. I, I'm curious about how you view the future of you know the next we'll call it the next year of of the hobby industry and and of hobbytown in particular. what What are some things that are getting you excited?
1: Well, if we can back up just a couple of years to the start of the pandemic, um in early 2020 you know right as businesses were being locked down there was so much uncertainty back in mm. what was that april may yeah. um yeah. that we we're like holy cow are we going to survive this thing um and it, something about it just changed the mentality i think people just it's kind of like a renaissance for doing things at home and doing it doing things with your hands again and um, we just had so many people that were bored with, you know, video games and watching Netflix that they just needed something to do. Yep. Um, that it kind of just was a resurgence for the hobby industry. It, it, and then, then we were playing the guessing game from the rest of 2020. We were setting record sales. Now we were doing, you know, if we were some, um, example of what it's like for the entire industry, we were setting record sales for our company, uh, with fewer franchise stores or locations than, than we'd ever had. You know, we, at one point we had over 160 locations or over 170 locations. And now we have just over a hundred locations. Um, but we're setting record sales and we would look at 2020 and go, okay, 2021, it's all going to slow down. Well, it didn't slow down. Um, it just kept going. And so in 2022 came around, we're like, okay, things have got to slow down. <laughs> um, it did a little bit, not, not as much as we thought it would. So it's kind of like we've stabilized now at this new higher level of sales and customer awareness that we just gained so many new customers during that pandemic. Um, and, you know, a lot of them I'm sure are new to the hobby and found it interesting and told their friends about it. And it just, it's kind of, you know, expanding uh, the awareness. So, that's exciting that as we go into 2023 we have kind of this new foundation or platform to build on of customers uh, and that's so important for the industry because if you're a manufacturer you know you got to be looking at those numbers especially part of the pandemic um, on the RC airside. side going wow at what point does it is it cost effective to, to develop product you know okay. Um if I introduce this new product, is there going to be enough people and customers out there to support it? Um, so now that's kind of exciting that we're seeing all these numbers, the surge, that manufacturers can kind of look at it differently and back to maybe what they looked at it, how they looked at it before February or December of 2016, that maybe um, this is going to be an opportunity to see a lot of new product come out. So um, for brick and mortar and online sales, new product is what really drives business and the sales so we love it when when there's innovation and new product coming out so hopefully with this surge in customers and awareness we're going to see a lot of new product coming out that was
0: one of the most surprising things for me about the last two years because i've i've heard that same comment from uh from both you know our local hobby shop we have here in town from uh, a lot of our uh advertisers uh for for our magazine and they have all said the same thing that it's like yeah we thought that when the pandemic hit this was going to be a really really bad time and it turned out being it turned out to be record sales for for everybody um that shocked me it really did but it's in a a great way i like i'm I'm thrilled by it well Uh, Bob, I want to ask you, so uh, if people want to learn more about Hobby Town, if they want to visit your website, uh, HobbyTown.com, is that right?
1: HobbyTown.com would be the website for shopping um, online and shopping our stores. Um, All of our stores are, like I said, they're locally owned and operated, but their inventory is is surfaced on HobbyTown.com. So if you're a customer, you can go there and you can see what's in stock at your local HobbyTown. If you're interested in a HobbyTown franchise, um, HobbyTownFranchise.com is the place to go for information on that. And if you're very serious about it, there's an inquiry form that you can fill out. And actually it goes right into my email box and I will be the one that will respond. Um, I, I, I like being the first responder when it comes to people interested in our franchise, because it gives me the opportunity to, kind of what you asked early on in this podcast about what was it like to be the brand ambassador for HobbyTown? I'm really looking for people that align with our vision and our core values. So if I can have that first conversation with somebody who's interested in the franchise, we can either hopefully um, filter out the ones that don't align and um, engage with the ones that do. And, you know, in the last two, two and a half years, we've had a lot of our franchisees retire and, um, we have, I think 20, close to 25 new franchisees in our franchise system in the last two or three years. So there's a lot of interest, um, in people opening or purchasing an existing HobbyTown franchise. And I'm seeing more and more leads come through. And so it's just the challenge for us is, um, just to be able to, to get that alignment, find the people that really fit in align with our, our core values and our vision. And that's when things go really well. I'm, I'm sure we'll be successful for a long time if we can continue to find people like that. Absolutely.
0: I mean, that, and that is going to uh, what yeah. makes a successful uh, business like Hobby Towns. And uh, I, I'm thrilled that you were able to carve some time out to talk to me today. I know you're a very busy guy and uh, especially this time of year, Um, I would encourage folks to go visit your, your local hobby town, uh, to do your holiday shopping as, as we record this episode, we are just about, um, I don't know, a week and a half or so from, from Christmas. So, uh, get that holiday sh- holiday shopping in at hobby town. I know I'm going to go visit my uh, local hobby town. It's about 45 minute drive down the road, but that's totally fine for me, uh, to pick up some stuff for some, uh, to get some gifts for some folks. So, uh, Bob, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on the AMA podcast. This was awesome.
1: Yeah, thank you, Matt. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be on this with you and Merry Christmas wishes to you. And um, I, I would just reinforce, yeah, go shop your local hobby town. And if you don't have a hobby town near you, go shop your local hobby shop.
0: There you go. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for being on the show. And I want to thank all of you guys out there for listening to this episode of the AMA podcast. If you have not subscribed, we'd love it if you do that. We're on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. And of course, you can listen right from your browser at modelaircraft.org slash podcast. If you listen through Apple Podcasts, we'd love it if you leave a comment there and rate us. That'll help us out tremendously. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Academy of Model Aeronautics, please head over to modelaircraft.org and see what the AMA can do for you. We'd love to see you out at one of our flying fields very, very soon. And with that, for everybody here at the AMA, thank you so much for listening to the AMA podcast.